Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode seven, and we're recording on Thursday, June 20th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of bookriot.com. Rebecca, how are you doing? Good. I'm good. I'm on my third iced coffee this morning. Is it full summer? It's hot down there. It's full summer. It's like in the mid 80s here already. I'm in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, Rebecca's in Richmond. I'm the home of the Confederacy. Yes, the capital of the Confederacy. Jefferson Davis is buried here. Mm. And I am yeah. here in Brooklyn, New York, where in mid-June, it is about as beautiful as it gets in New York. It yeah. is 75, no <laughs> humidity, beautiful. I was out for a walk at 5 o'clock with the kid because he couldn't sleep. And you know what? I was happy about it because it was just so that's, beautiful. That's crazy town. Yeah, I'm playing this game with myself right now where I'm conducting a little mind over matter experiment mm-hmm. where if I if I say that it's sultry outside, is that better in my brain, then it's like sweltering and humid. So we're, I'm seeing how it goes. Is Peggy Lee singing fever out there? I don't understand. I mean, Sultry. Peggy Lee is always singing fever in right. my brain. Uh, I'm just I'm just trying it. I read it somewhere recently. Okay. Somebody describing the South as sultry. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, so. As opposed to like miserable and gross. Right, exactly. You know what? I always, this is just a complete word nerd thing. But you know, if you're listening to this, welcome aboard. We have jackets. Um I was. I realized I've been using balmy incorrectly. I was using balmy. I think like you're using sultry. Oh, like thick and kind of close and warm. Oh yeah, that's not right. That's that is incorrect. Balmy is what it is right now in New York. It's beautiful. The trees are waving. It's comfortable. I don't know. I I just messed it up. Hmm. Don't you love it? Or I. I love and hate those moments. Like, I completely was misusing that, or I totally misunderstood that concept, idea, or, or when, behavior. Like, you've only encountered a word by reading it, and then you hear someone say it out loud, and you're like, that's how it's pronounced. Yeah, I call that most of my vocabulary. <laughs> and almost every author name, which you guys will find over oh, the course yes, of doing yeah. this show. that Author names for sure. We butcher author names like the fatted calf. Uh, I, I, I realized like five years ago that I had been saying ostensibly wrong in my head for oh, years. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I'm not going to ask you to pronounce it as you once it did. Was a, it was an emphasis on the wrong syllable oh, situation. Oh, emphasis on the wrong syllable. I think um, that's pretty common for it. It's the reader's malediction, right? That this is mm-hmm. just one thing you do if you read a lot is you know more words than you can say correctly. Yes, um, yeah. One of our rioters told me recently that tyranny and tyrant were a problem for her because she she didn't know until she heard someone pronounce it out loud that it if that it wasn't tyranny, which makes sense, tyranny, right? Yeah, like you've got a tyrant, so you would have tyranny, or you have tyranny and a tyrant. Why are they not the same? Well, um, honestly, English probably, is hard. Probably most reader mis- mispronunciations follow that pattern where you actually are making it more logical than it is. Right, let's normally. not make English logical. Yeah, English is the worst. So anyway, um, got we've got a little up. bit of follow-up. And I've got very sad news to report in follow-up, that Octavia Butler died. In, in 2006. In 2006. I said she was alive still last week. And I think I, what, I'm not going to try to make an excuse. I was just dead wrong. I don't know how I missed that when doing my little um, 30 seconds of, of uh, talking about Octavia Butler, but sadly she died in 2006, so she's no longer with us. Um, I don't know what else to say about that. Nope, those are that's that's the facts. That's it. And um, we also asked last week for people to suggest titles um, about dystopian futures that maybe are more like what we kind of are feeling things are going towards than 1984. Last week we talked about the story where sales of 1984 had spiked um, because of, in addition to, around the PRISM and NSA stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we said last time that, you know, 1984, you know, it's an interesting cautionary tale, but it seems so far away from our world that, you know, how useful that really is. Um, so author Katie, oh boy, Henrik, I think I, I tried that, Katie. I'm sorry if I butchered that. She, she, she suggested, uh, oh boy, 
<laughs> Gary Steingart's. <laughs> Boy, I'm just getting them all today. You got whiskey in your coffee today, Jeff? I think Jeff? that's right, though. Right? Steingart? Is that Steingart? 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 Super Sorry, sad, Gary. true love story, um, which I have read, and it's set in a near future where it, I, I think, I think Katie's right. This is a good suggestion, um, where the U.S. lives in a constant state of fear uh, of China more than anything. And it's not so much the government that's controlling everything, but giant corporations mm. um, and tied to the multimedia devices that, you know, we're using all the time. And it's kind of, they're kind of like extremely capable connected iPhones that monitor all sorts of kinds of things that are going on around you. There are checkpoints everywhere um, that are, that, you know, monitoring checkpoints that basically have this warning. Like, By reading this message, you are denying its existence and implying consent, <laughs> um, which, you know, I have to admit, that's kind of how I feel about the internet a little bit. Like I just mm-hmm. go in knowing like, yep, everything I'm doing now, someone is monitoring and watching. Oh yes. Um, yeah. I assume the NSA knows all yeah. my stuff. And if I weren't so safely ensconced in the walls of the Imperium as I am, um, I would be worried about that probably, but I'm boring and not interesting. Yeah. Whatever the NSA knows about me is embarrassing, but not criminally. not actionable. (laughs) So, yeah, it's like you don't want your grandma to read your text messages, but there's nothing in there that you're going to get arrested for. But just because I have no particular interest, that doesn't mean there aren't people out there who um, aren't of particular interest and maybe shouldn't be surveyed. But anyway, that's an interesting choice. So if you're if you're wanting to look for something like that in these days, in these ages, I think super sad, true love story. It came out a few years ago. Um, it's out in paperback now. It's a satire um, and a dystopia at one and the same time. Um, so I, I, can, I can recommend that one. Cool. Very yeah. cool. The only thing of, his, of uh, Gary Steingart's that I've read are his 7 million book blurbs. Which are is, an art form. Of they are an art so. form. He is known for... Blurbing, blurbology. Blurber supreme. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, before we get into the meat of the week, and there's a lot. Yeah, this was a meaty week, but like... It's like a short rib. uh, The internet raged this week. Let's do our first sponsor, and that's The Diabolist by Leighton Green. That's a novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's the third in a series. The first two are The Summoner and The Egyptian. Um, And it's, it's not a series where the story goes from one to another. They're just set in the same universe, but each can stand on your own, so... If oh, I love those, that. Yeah, I like that too. I wish people did that more often, honestly. So you don't get lost. I feel all that pressure. And it puts it, it puts me off starting a new series yeah. if they're like, oh, well, this third one is really great. But you really should go back and read the first two, even right. if the first, yeah. Well, it's like the same thing with a TV series that has like a long narrative arc. Like, I'm just going to mm-hmm. wait for Breaking Bad to be over now because I can't, I have to go to the beginning and start. You know, if you started yesterday and watched one episode a day, you'd be caught up because it premieres in 54 days and... We have 54 episodes. I'm a little frightened that that's at the tip of your tongue, that, that you just know that <laughs> from today. Like, uh, Thank anyway. you, Breaking Bad Facebook Yeah, The page. Diablos by Leighton Green, there are these three um, uh, mysteries, and they s- set in the same universe. Each in- book investigates a cult. Um, so this one is about the bizarre murder of a satanic priest. I, I don't know that there are normal murders of satanic yeah. priests, but this is a particularly bizarre one, uh, apparently. And the suspect is the prophet of a new age cult. So we've got warring cults, and you got to like that. That mm-hmm. sounds like a lot of fun. I do love a good cult story. Um, the main character, Dominic Gray, is a mix of Indiana Jones and Jason Bourne. So, hmm. you know, people like those guys. Uh, so that's The Diabolist by Leighton Green, um, if you like that. Or check out the descriptions for The Summoner or The Egyptian, of what, or the, the Egyptian. Um, and maybe you want to dive in and try them there. You can check those out. Google them, uh, Amazon. Dot com will have them as well. So thanks so much for uh, sponsoring the show, The Diabolist. Check that out if you're interested. Help the show out. Yes. Okay, we've got two, I guess, uh, tentpole stories this week. Mm-hmm. One that was on our site and one that was out in the wider internet world. Let's start there. Um, Vice Magazine did a photo shoot of some, uh, it, it's a fashion photo shoot of some notable suicides by famous women authors. Yes, they did. Um, including um, Virginia Woolf, Sylvia Plath, um, Charlotte Perkins. It's since been taken down. Um, as Because as you might imagine, people weren't super thrilled with this. Not super thrilled. This did and... not win the best idea in the history of the Internet Award. <laughs> it did not. The sea was angry that day, my friend. The sea was angry that, that day. <laughs> it that, was... Yeah. Uh, or 124 was angry. 
You know that one, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the first line of Love It. Anyway. Yes. Um, filled with what? Baby's venom? Yeah, filled with ba- uh, baby's venom. Anyway, so Vice Magazine uh, did this photo shoot of, I think there were six. I, I should have screen capped this. Um, right. Who knew it was going to disappear? I uh, mean, maybe we should have predicted that it would disappear. I, I thought they would stick to their guns a little bit more than this. Uh, so Charlotte Perkins, who wrote The Yellow Wallpaper... Sylvia Plath, who wrote The Bell Jar, um, Virginia Woolf, who wrote many awesome things, uh, Elizabeth Cohen, who was a beat poet, and there was a Chinese novelist that I had not heard of um, that was included there. I think there might have been one more uh, that I can't remember right now. Anyway, you, you get the idea. Um, and people were upset about this, and I, I think I understand why. Well, do you want to take con and I'll take pro, because I think we are coming down a little well, differently on this. I'm sure. not as upset as some people are. but I... I have a couple sides to the con argument here. I think in general, it's in poor taste to do a photo shoot based on suicide. Um, The thing that I really have a problem with and that I think a lot of readers took issue with was that this is Vice Magazine's fiction issue. Um, Vice Magazine actually has published some fiction that I've really enjoyed reading. I think sometimes they do great work and they are edgy. And when you are attempting to be edgy, you're going to step in it sometimes and upset people. But that's sort of their game. Um, The problem for me is that this is supposed to be a piece that is dedicated or recognizing these great women writers. And the only thing then that we recognize about these great women writers is the ways that they died. Right. Um, and so, which is problematic because they, you know, certainly made significant contributions to, to literature and to world culture. Um, the other thing that has really been sticking for me is that you couldn't do really an equivalent photo shoot of male authors who committed suicide. And a couple of the pieces that I read in objection to the Vice piece pointed out, you know, lots of male writers commit suicide too, and they listed them off. But the thing is that men in general commit suicide in ways that are more violent than women do. So while you can put, you know, rocks in your pockets and make that look sort of elegant, um, or there's a ton of art that depicts Ophelia, you know, floating down a river, um, you can't really turn shooting yourself in the head into art. So this is like a piece that was only, to me, going to get done about women. Mm. And it's upsetting that these great women writers are now only recognized for the ways that they died. And it's not just Vice magazine that does it. You know, you can't really talk about Sylvia Plath without talking about the way that her life ended. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think also... Uh, one of our writers has a piece going up on the site later today um, that that Vice put this up and it's a very sensitive subject without any sort of acknowledgement that it was a sensitive subject for people or a, a trigger. You know, the internet does these trigger warnings. Watch out when you read this thing because mm-hmm. if this is a sensitive issue for you, it might trigger that. Um, and Vice didn't seem to to care. Not that I would really expect Vice to care given I mean, what their I, name is Vice Magazine. Right, like this is their that game. That doesn't excuse anything, but... Um... Yeah. So, yeah, unexpected. hit me with the pro, Jeff. Well, it's, I mean, it's not a strong pro. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to march in favor of this, I have to admit. But uh, <laughs> This is not your hill? Let, let me take uh, the, the second part of what you said first. There is, one of the images was of a woman who shot herself in the head. So hmm. she had a revolver and it was, um, I think you could. I, I would disagree a little bit that you couldn't do it with men. I think it's less likely to happen for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, you could have Hart Crane standing on the, the prow of the ship he jumped off of um, mm-hmm. and, or, you know, his body floating in the waters. You know, you, you, could, you could do it. Fashion shoots in general are wickedly gendered female. So I think there's, you, you combine the romance of the sort of femme fatale writer mm-hmm. um, with the genderedness of fashion photography and it's just much more likely that it's going to be a women's shoot not that you couldn't do it but i'm not saying that's right or wrong it's just that i think i mean that's a fair point um i think it is unfortunate that it was in the middle of this fiction issue um you know i I don't know if it makes it better or worse that it was around pieces about marilyn robinson and a short story by mary gatskill and some other people um that it was a chance to not do some of the typical dialogue about women's writing um, Mm -hmm. in that kind of uh, self-immolating way. Um, So I guess I will stipulate that, you know, if it were up to me, I wouldn't have put it in in this particular issue. If taking the shoot on its own, I guess, is where I want to go a little bit. Because I I saw some of the um, 
upsetting, um, the upset commentary on it before I saw it. And I was ready for something much more, I don't know, exploitative, I would guess. Hmm. I found myself very shocked that how moving I found it, honestly. Huh. Um, because I think, like you sort of said, especially Wolf and Plath, who are the totemic female suicides um, of, of writers, I would say, uh, it's almost become such an established fact that I forget it. Does that make sense? Like, I saw that picture of Wolf standing in the river, like, holding these rocks, and I was reminded again how, what a terrible and awful gesture that was. Um, and the immediacy and viscerality of that was brought home to me in a way that it hadn't been since I think I first heard the story. Mm, so Does that seeing, make sense? Yeah, seeing it made... yeah made that act feel like, like a concrete like thing that you could again, and not relate just a character to. Sure. In a Virginia Woolf story, which it feels like it could be, right? Like that's one mm-hmm. of the things about both Plath and Wolf that I don't think gets talked about enough is both of those acts feels like something they would write into one of their stories. Um, and the Plath too of uh, the, the way this one was shot of Plath is that she's on her knees in her 1960s kitchen with the mm-hmm. door to the oven just sort of looking into it and maybe thinking for a second. That's kind of how I read it of, am I going to do this? Yeah. Or is this good? Or And there, I, I don't know. And then the one of um, Charlotte Perkins, and I had forgotten, she killed herself age 75 with chloroform, which is not the easy. You got to hold that thing mm-hmm. on there, um, you know, and she's sitting on her porch and just, I don't know. I found it very, very, as as a memorial to these people. I, I found it very moving. That's my experience. So that's, you know, anecdata at its worst. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of where I, I came down on it. A I little think that bit. makes sense reading about these things, whether you're reading them in a scenes in a novel or as notes in, you know, an autobiography or, or not an autobiography, right. notes in a biography or in, you know, class lectures or, or whatever about these writers. It's, it, it to see it does make it something more than just another bullet point about them. Right. So I can understand what you're saying about it, that bringing it home, what that, what it must have been like to be the person in that moment who made that terrible and awful yeah. decision or what that act And um, I've got this means. another theory about, oh, I'm sorry, did I cut you off? You were going to say something else there. Um, I'm still trying to decide. Yeah. I, no, if, I mean, it's, I don't think we have to exonerate or condemn Yeah, it I feel like maybe the potential damage outweighs the sure, yeah. potential benefits here. There's other theory about some of the, the outrage about it. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, tell me. I love your theories, Jeff. I think I think there's a bit of lit snobbery going on, and mm. lit snobs don't think fashion is a real art. Oh. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see where I'm going I with do. This? I do. Like, how dare these how dare, fashion how people dare fashion talk about literature? Virginia Woolf dying. Ah, I think um, that you are onto something there. Because I have to admit, um, and perhaps by admitting it, make my argument stronger that I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that I, I, I don't. We know these people exist because you are one of yeah, them. Yeah, right. Um, that I don't. Listen, if I were ranking the 10 most impactful art forms, fashion wouldn't be on there. Let's just put it that way. Um, I'm not into fashion myself. Um, I'm not particularly interested in it. Um, That said, that doesn't mean that I don't understand that some people think of it as an art and fashion photography as an art. So what if, here's, here's my alternative. What if these same photographs were presented in a museum and not Mm. associated with a fashion magazine or presented as fashion photography where you know what the name of the kind of jacket. That, oh, that's um, interesting. Oh, Dorothy Park is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a represent. She didn't actually commit suicide. She just tried to several times. So that's uh, something, you know, what if it were presented in a different format? So the content is the same, like the actual images mm-hmm. are the same, but the sort of um, association with fashion and I think through fashion, a more grossly, and I don't mean that like in the icky way, but the more overtly commercial way, I think those of us who are lit snobs associate with fashion um, was sort of stripped away. And it was just the images themselves. Now, again, I've read my McLuhan. I know that's not entirely possible. But just for this thought experiment, I wondered if mm. some of it was this feeling like fa- by associating these women's suicides with fashion, it felt like a cheap thing or uh, a commercialization or some sort of other commodification of their lives, which I think all of those nouns would be unfortunate. 
but to necessarily ascribe them to fashion because you don't think of it as an equivalent art perhaps is unfair. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I, lit snobbery is a real and present thing in our in our right. lives on yeah. the, that we see in our lives on the internet. I think you're onto something there that that might be a piece of it. I also wonder if we shook out that thought experiment a little bit differently too. If like, is this photo shoot upsetting in general? If mm. it's just a photo shoot of women attempting suicide and they're and it's not connected to these authors yeah. right it's not connected to famous people that we know of maybe probably i guess right. um is it upsetting if it's just artwork that's not about selling clothes mm-hmm. you know like if they i don't think this is this one didn't yeah, seem I, to me I, about i mean no i think this is what they would call like an editorial right. photo shoot yeah um right which i know from my extensive viewing of project runway <laughs> <laughs> Touche. I have no comeback for that. (laughs) And more seasons than I would like to admit of America's Next Top Model. Uh, I can smile with my eyes, yo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I do think it's it's a tangled thing that they're doing here. I want to go back and point out I completely agree that it's unfortunate that this happened, especially in the Vice magazine fiction Yeah, part of me is just like, you know, you're doing a Um, a fiction issue with a bunch of women. Leave that alone. Leave it out. Do it some other time. Call Kenny Loggins. You're in the danger zone. Yeah, okay. I Um, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, and and if you want to see this, they pulled the the photo shoot offline, but it's of course still in the oh, printed edition. I didn't edition. think about that. I might have to go yeah, get one. Just it's to still have available one. in the printed edition, and I I will Unless say there's I some think, monkey like going around running, just ripping them. Yeah, off. Right. and you know they're probably it's those same people who go into bookstores during election season and, oh, like, and like turn over all the books know, by right. the candidates they don't like. Yeah. Uh, and those too people, much time brigade. Yeah, those people exist too. Uh, yeah, and you can check it out. And Vice does some interesting things with fiction. It's worth keeping an eye on um, in this issue and and down the road if if you like uh, publications that are willing to push the boundaries. Right. And, you know, I, I sort of feel bad for Vice, too. I think they made a bad call this time around, um, and they made a good and interesting call by responding to sort of what the feedback was from the public. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are not, you know, I don't think they're doing bad work over there. They're doing some interesting stuff. And when you push the boundaries, you're bound to yeah. you know, upset people along the way. Yeah, and I guess... Maybe at the the root of the root of the issue is representing these suicides at all, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think where people might diverge on the issue really goes back to that. Like, should we be representing suicide in art, like you know, of real people at all? Mm-hmm. If you think its representation itself is upsetting or you know can cause action or damage, that's one thing. My own sense is that we have to represent this stuff. Well, I think we have to represent it in art the same way that we represent other big, difficult yeah. issues in art. And and now I'm doing your thought experiment in my head and thinking about if I were walking through a museum and I saw these photographs, I don't think that I would encounter them the same way right. or respond to them the same way that I responded to them as a fashion photo shoot in a magazine. Yeah, right. Um, and I don't know that that's fair or not. I think it's just an interesting way. Yeah, of it is. Thinking it's an, about it. it is an interesting thing to consider. Um, um, okay, so lots, there, of, lots of stuff going. Yeah, on it's there. really it's it's at the nexus of a lot of really interesting questions and problems <laughs> around art and commerce and content and gender and just all all of the all of the the veins of what's interesting about this stuff collide there. So <laughs> another place that those veins collide. <laughs> Uh, we did a poll on the site a couple weeks ago. We ran the poll. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Oh, last week, asking readers to submit their three most hated books. Um, we've done a lot of different polls on the site. We've done your favorite books, your favorite living writer, um, what kind of e-reader you have, just because we're interested in what Mm -hmm. readers think about, um, what the books and their reading habits in their lives. Because readers love to see this stuff. They do. They're interested. Uh, and so um, Rebecca collected the data and came up with the 25 most hated books. Before we go look at the list a little bit and talk about the reaction in the list, we had almost 1,000 respondents, right? 900 mm-hmm. and some, uh-huh. uh, who picked. So there were, I guess, 2,700 possible blanks. Yes. And there were what? 747 unique 700, titles mentioned. So there were actually fewer books mentioned than total participants, which means that there was actually a lot of clustering. That, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Well, there was. There's, a, there's some clustering around a handful of titles. Yeah. but And then a long most, tail of single 
Right. Most of the books um, that were mentioned were mentioned only once. The the median and the mode here are both one. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) So uh, the reaction has been surprise, surprise, (laughs) I think. Your your average reader's reaction was, I'm surprised that these books are on there. And the second reaction is, oh yeah, my least favorite book is on there, maybe right next to my favorite book. Right. Yeah, there's surprise. I think that's the most interesting outcome to me. It, it is. Yeah, there's the surprise that that books you love show up on this list. Right. Um, that's that's the interesting thing is to watch the comments and yep. the comment section on this post and on Facebook for it were really uh, something. They They're were really something. something. Yeah. Uh, so let's do the top 10 and then people can look at the whole 25 because okay. I think the top 10 is indicative of um, it is kind of the larger pattern. And this this list of twenty five is interesting. It's a pretty solid mix of classics and then contemporary, really commercially successful yeah. fiction. That I, like, I think the takeaway for us was, and I think we knew this maybe going into it. If if a bunch of people have read your book, a, a, a bunch of people are going to hate it. Like mm-hmm. the vagaries of taste are such that anything that gets read a lot is going to have a certain percentage of people who really didn't like it. Sure. Because the, we're different. Right. The more people who read a thing, that's more people who have the opportunity yeah. to hate it. And that's so, been... So number one... Twilight. Twilight. Stephanie Meyer got 102 votes. It would have been higher if I had moved like the mentions of New Moon and Breaking Dawn and oh, other Twilight series titles interesting. Uh, into it. Like the, right. It would have had an even farther ahead lead, further ahead. Um, so Twilight was number one, 102 mentions. Tied for second place is Catcher in the Rye and Fifty Shades of Grey that were both mentioned 90 times. 90 times. So you got poor Holden Caulfield in a Stephanie Meyer E.L. James sandwich. Yep, I think, um, I guess I'm not surprised that Catcher is the most disliked of the quote-unquote classics. I could, just because I've heard from and I see people that hate Holden Caulfield and he's so whiny and blah, blah, blah. Like that one's not surprising mm-hmm. to me there. I, I would have guessed actually that it would, that the most hated of the classics here would have been something that was a little bit more difficult to get right. into as a kid the first time you had to read it. I think I would have, like The Grapes of Wrath came in number 18 and I would have guessed mm-hmm. maybe that or The Scarlet Letter right. would be up higher. Something that's a more painful read the first time you read it Yeah, that's school. interesting. I, I think what I see in The Hate for Catcher is that it, it ages badly as you get older. Yeah. Where I think those other things, the converse is true. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a bunch of us read Catcher in the Rye when we're 16, 17, 18, and like, whoa, yeah, screw parents and everyone sucks. That isn't me. Sure, right. And then we get older, it's like, oh, yeah, I understand the world a little bit better, and that's kind of lame. Whereas, and then the Scarlet Letter, when you read it when you're 16, you're like, God, who cares about these Puritans? And then when you're older, it's like, oh, this tragic love story. And mm-hmm. so even if the first experience, like your initial memory yeah. of those is tough as we... Yeah, I think that's fair. As we so, like, anyway. most of our readers are in their twenties and right. uh, or maybe have enough distance to appreciate yeah. those. So, so going down, the uh, we got Twilight, Catcher in the Rye, Fifty Shades of Grey. Four is the most surprising. Four is the Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby. I'm not surprised it's on here, frankly, um, just because so many people have read it. I'm surprised it's so high. Yeah, it was 53 mentions. Yeah. I wonder, and you and I were sort of musing about this yesterday. I wonder if it would have been that high if Gatsby was not in like so prevalent in pop culture right now as well, if it wasn't just at the forefront of our minds. Well, you know, I was surprised and I guess, um, you know what, actually the piece that inspired the poll was a recent piece in New York magazine um, written by Catherine Schultz, who was basically like, um, a confession. It wasn't really a confession so much as just, I don't like the great Gatsby. Right. Like she'd read it five times and couldn't find a thing to like about it. it. And for several decades now, Gatsby has been sort of sacred ground for Mm -hmm. nerd snobs. And it seemed like that expression by Schultz had a lot, a lot of people got on that wagon or were already on that wagon, but just sort of came out from under the blanket and said, yeah, I'm on this one. Yeah, there were a lot of people who I think were like, oh, well, now that someone has admitted it publicly, I too can admit publicly that I don't like that book. Um, So I don't know if that has any effect here necessarily, but there... That was a hint that Nixon's silent majority mm-hmm. <laughs> about the Great Gatsby is maybe they'd just been quiet for so long and were given a chance. And when asked anonymously, like, yeah, I really hated those guys in that book. Um, also, it's probably the most read high school, you oh, know, right? Yeah. So that, there's also that effect, too. Five Moby Dick, no surprise to me Not there, a surprise. Honestly. Wuthering Heights is number six. Yeah. I'm 
I'm not surprised about that either. Yeah. I have never managed to make it through Wuthering Heights in my many attempts. Yeah, I am that's sorry tough. if you love Emily Bronte. I have to Google it every time to remind myself which Bronte wrote that well, thing. Well, everyone does. I mean, that's it's, just part of um, now, being a Okay, so thing. number seven, I am Lord blaming, fly, like, I'm blaming this wholeheartedly on high school English teachers. Yeah. Well, we had some conversation with the readers in the comments about, you know, if you had a terrible experience in high school with the book, you know, that sticks with you. And I thought it was interesting. We started talking about teachers a little bit. Um, and you said, I don't remember what book you were talking about. You can tell me in a second. Like, you had a great teacher for X book. And, you know, it really, you know, I don't salvage the wrong word, but really amped up your appreciation for it. And mm -hmm. some other people were like, yeah, I had a terrible teacher for X book, and I've always hated it, and blah, 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 blah. I think oh, that's yeah. really a, a thing. Like, that's a thing. That is, it's a thing. For me, that's, that's Heart of Darkness that I was oh, talking right. about, yes, which is, is on this list. It's number nine of the most hated books. Um, and uh, yeah, I had an incredible teacher for Heart of Darkness my senior year of high school. She made it one of the best books that I had read at that point in my life. I, it's, it's 13 years later and I still love Heart of Darkness. Um, but that's one of those books that I, I think, and, and we've talked about this a little, Jeff, like I think if you... 17 might be too young right. for Heart of Darkness. And if it, and you said when we were talking the other day that if it takes the great teacher to make the book something you yeah. can relate to, then you're probably too young for the book. Right. That, that book might be better saved um, for college students. Or um, you need a great teacher. Or you need a great yeah. teacher for it. And, and that's, that's, it is a real thing. You need a great teacher for Heart it. Heart of Darkness, I think, would be difficult to love. If you're 16 and, and encountered it, A, on your own, or B, with a bad teacher. Yeah, definitely. But um, I think it's an amazing book, but it, it feels, well, it's, for Pete's sake, it's called, called Heart of right, Darkness. You yeah. don't have somebody making it awesome. It's just people floating down a river yeah, being and, miserable. And getting, and getting increasingly bitten by stuff. Right, right? like they're, things are scary and they're bitten and they're miserable and then they sleep and then they get up and they do it all over again right. and they're looking for this guy and the guy's gone crazy and like, ooh, heads on pikes. Like it's, it's that's a rough one. Yeah. Um, I was sort of surprised Lord of the Flies came in at number seven. Like mm. if there is a book that you can relate to the difficulties of being a teenager and yeah. how it just feels like every man for himself, like Lord of the Flies does that and uh, and I, I don't know, maybe this is another great teacher case, but I remember being like, oh, yes, I can. I could imagine my high school as that island and who was Piggy and who was going to be the first to die. Um, yeah, that, that one's a little harder for me to explain as well. I'm surprised because it's not exceptionally long or difficult to read and it has a, a plot and tension and a lot of the hallmarks of something mm -hmm. that I think would keep a book off this list. So that one's a bit of a mystery too. Yeah, Ten, yeah. When Ten I was Atlas Shrugged is not a surprise. That's to not see a surprise. There. The Da Vinci Code from our boy Deep Riz. That not was a number surprise, eight. Number eight. Uh, that's a true case, I think, of the of tons of people read this thing, and so tons of people have an opportunity. Yeah. So th those are the top ten. And anything else in the top twenty five we should pick out as being especially uh, interesting? You know, a lot of our readers were super surprised that Gone Girl showed up at number eleven. I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not that surprised either. I think in another couple of years, Gone Girl will fall off this list of yeah. what are the books that you hate the most. But that's certainly present in book conversation right now. Um, notable that Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections came in at number 19. Not yeah. surprising to me. I think the one that the most people who were surprised or outraged, and outrage is strong, but, mm -hmm. you know, reacted negatively to hearing was that Pride and Prejudice was 15. Yeah, Pride and Prejudice. We got a whole lot of like, how can Pride, how can Pride and Prejudice what kind of, be on actually, this? The thing that surprises me about these responses is the number of people who say, what kind of person yeah. hates Pride and Prejudice? I'm surprised by the surprise, I have like, to say. Like, like, you're a, like it's a value judgment on your, you know, your, your yeah, morals as right. a person. <laughs> like, there's something morally wrong with you if you yeah. didn't like Pride and Prejudice. And, well, and I said in the, I mean, I responded to someone, I said, you know, I think some people find the courtship rituals of 19th century right. landed gentry <laughs> relatively dull. Right, and, and I am one of those people. I don't. I love Pride and Prejudice, but I can see that, you know, it's, there. It's, it may not be your cup of tea. I mean, yeah, <laughs> to it's use not, an appropriate metaphor. Right, right, um, yeah. Pride and Prejudice 
not in my top three hated books, but if we did a survey of the books that you came out very meh oh, on. Oh, right, your wet lettuce was, books. I, right, I'm just very uh, Pride and Prejudice. Like, mm. I, it's, I feel the same way about Jane Eyre if we're going to go completely ah, confessional okay. here. Right. I can appreciate... Number 22 on the it's, list. Yeah. I can appreciate its significance in literature. I get why Jane Eyre matters mm-hmm. to English lit. I get why Pride and Prejudice matters, Um and that's an, I think that's an important thing. It's valuable to read these books, even if you don't like them, and understand, first of all, why you don't like them, right. um, but also why other people think they're important. But I just was, they're just not my thing. Yeah. Doesn't blow my skirt up. Um, yeah. Someone- actually, that's a thing that I wish we had done has been like, you are on the honor system when you complete this list of books you hate. You need to have read the book before you're allowed to say you hate it. I, I really want to go. Somewhere, are you just mad about Fifty Shades of Grey? Or did you really read it? That maybe people hadn't actually read Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey 1 and 3. I don't know that we can know that. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people read those books. <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> I mean, a lot of Today, people. in understatement. Yeah, a lot of people read that book. I guess the one other thing I thought was interesting, um, a couple of comments uh, that, you know, that this, doing a poll like this and having listened to this was, uh, how to put it, I guess, harmed or discouraged people from reading, which mm. never occurred to me, to be uh, honest with you. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. And I so, guess I can sort of see it in a way that argument, like here's a bunch of these books that people have heard of. And if you hadn't read it and you saw it on this list, you'd be like, I'm not reading that book. Well, it's on the book of 25. I mean, I can sort of see the, the logic, but I, I just disagree with of, the premise. Yeah. I, I think part of being a reader is trying stuff, you yeah. know, like part of being a foodie is putting things in your mouth that you might not like, right. um, but you have to try. Um, that was an awkward phrase. I'm yeah. sorry about that. <laughs> right. That's what we're here for, the awkward phrases. You are welcome. Yeah. Uh, but interestingly, there's a ton of overlap between this list of most hated books and our yeah. readers' favorite That's books. True. And then there's also overlap between both of those and the list of books that Riot readers keep meaning to read but mm-hmm. never seem to get around to. Um, so... I don't know. I think it's valuable to talk about the stuff yeah, we don't like. And I we don't really so. we don't really do much talking about stuff we don't like at Book Riot. So it was interesting to see that. The thing that I found really interesting was um or one of the additional things was people saying, "Oh, people are just trying to get attention and and be controversial by saying that they don't like Pride and Prejudice." But it's an anonymous survey. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't buy that either. Um <laughs> Maybe I can see there certain num- amount of posturing in public, or you know, mm-hmm. on something mm-hmm. like that. You know, people. There's all sorts of cultural value associated with what books you like, and especially I think what books you don't like, which is a topic um, mm-hmm. of it in itself. But I, I, you know, maybe I'm naive, but I, I really don't see that as right. Uh, the as next a question that I'd like to ask is, what are the books that you pretend you've read but you haven't? Great poll. <laughs> I think we'll do that one next. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. Uh, yeah, we got some more. If you have a poll idea, um, hit us at podcast at bookriot.com. We're going to do one of these a month and a follow-up, and hopefully they're, they're pretty interesting. I, I, will, I always find these fascinating. So. Oh, it's so – the results are fascinating. Um, when the I'm reaction digging, to the results oh, is fa- – the reaction to the reaction to the results. The reaction is the best, and I, uh, I had the most – the strongest response is digging through this data than I did going through any of the stuff for the other surveys that we've done, which, you know, some of it was like, oh, I'm so glad this book that I hated also got mentioned a few times. But then there were a few where like, like, who are the two people who listed Beloved as a most hated book? And can I I find those people and inform them that they're wrong? It is. Uh, It's, I always say uh, in New York about weather that in the summer, it's difficult to imagine the winter. In the winter, it's difficult to imagine the summer. mm -hmm. I think with books, there's a similar phenomenon phenomenon where it's difficult to imagine someone loves a book that you despise or find confounding. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to imagine that someone despises or finds confounding something that you love dearly. Um, that's just the nature of it, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it brings acknowledging out, that I think is, can be very freeing and just yeah. sort of letting it go a little bit. Right. It brings out a part of us that, that wants to argue for why these books are so great and why if yeah. you don't, if you don't like Pride and Prejudice, it must be that you just don't really understand it. But like, no one has ever, uh, well, I don't know, no one's, no one's ever argued me into liking a book. You can maybe argue yeah, me right. into appreciating a book. Now that you mentioned, I do actually like that book. I found it wonderful and delightful. <laughs> right yeah, now that's that just you, not something that's going to happen. Now that you've berated my taste, yeah. Um, yeah, and and I think you're right. Maybe if we talk more about 
what it does to us when we realize that people don't love the books that we love or they don't hate the books that we hate. Having that conversation is more interesting and more productive, well, certainly. We hear from readers all the time when someone says, I didn't like this particular book that, you know, like Gatsby is an example. I think it's mm-hmm. cathartic for them. Like, yes, I'm not alone and stupid in this right. world, you know? <laughs> I am not the only I'm one. I'm not the only one. And that can be very... Um, uh, it's affirming and it sort is, of liberating. Or when the big buzzy books, when someone comes out yeah. and says that they they read the big thing that everybody's talking about, and in fact they didn't think it was that special. You do see people sort of flock out to that to yeah. you know to be validated and relieved that they're not the only ones who didn't get the why this thing was such a big deal. Yeah, so that's that's interesting stuff. So those are, that's the twenty five most hated books. I'll be in the show notes. Um, you can find that at uh, bookriot dot com slash category slash podcast, and you can see that. Uh, let's do birthdays. Birthday time. Got two birthdays this week of classics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ambrose Bierce. Um, m- probably someone you read and forgot in your survey of American Lit class. Uh, Civil War writer Chickamauga mm. was a famous short story he wrote. Mm-hmm. Also, the satirical The Devil's Dictionary, which would have been beautiful for the internet age, where he takes uh, a familiar word and gives a satirical uh, definition to it. Um, it's a oh, lot of fun. Oh man, that wants to be a Tumblr so bad. Yeah, it, I'm sure it's it's it. He'd be beautiful at Tumblr if you want to go kill 30 minutes and laugh at 19th century uh, lexicographic humor. Um, I looked that up. <laughs> it's all in the public domain. Ambrose Bierce, born June 24th, 1842, in Horse Cave Creek, Ohio. My factoid about him was the end of his life uh, disappeared. Oh, gone. Whoa. Uh, Thin air, just well. uh, Yeah, here's the story. Uh, When he was 71 in 1903, he fought in the Civil War um, and wrote about it afterwards. Um, Probably the great American fictional chronicler of the Civil War. He went back to do a tour of his old battlefields, a Mm. walking tour, and so he walked down um, from Ohio uh, into uh, the 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 Mid Atlantic, and then down through the South, um, down through New Orleans, and eventually went. Excuse me. Uh, well, here's what it gets interesting. He was writing letters um, all, all the while. And the last one that we know for sure was received was saying he was going into Mexico. Huh. Um, and there was this little thing happening in Mexico at this time in 1903. You might have heard of it. It's called the Mexican Revolution hmm. and Pancho Villa. And so from there, there's a lot of competing stories about what happened. Um, some claim that he wrote a letter that's been lost or, you know, there was only a draft that someone found uh, saying he was going to go up, join up with Pancho Villa, which didn't really sound like Bierce to a lot of people who had already seen his share of civil war. Um, some, some, there were oral reports that he was executed <laughs> by uh, a, a group of uh, Pancho Villa followers for, you know, being around some, he had asthma. He could have just fallen down dead um, somewhere along the way, but body was never found and we don't know what happened. It's It's pretty good, right? A literary mystery. I'm sort of surprised that there's not a novel imagining what happened to him, well, or maybe there good, is, right? Because like this, this last walk of Ambrose Bierce, like it's kind of yeah. good all the way through. Like, like and that's a title right there. That is yeah, the title. Last walk of Ambrose Bierce. So that's Ambrose Bierce. Born if you, if there is an Ambrose Bierce novel, oh, yeah. imagining this, hit us up. Podcast at yeah, this, is an, this is an E.L. Doctro novel waiting to happen. Mm, yeah, or like free idea. If yeah, free idea. One. The other birthday this week, uh, George Orwell, speaking of 1984. How timely. He was born um, in 1903, this week in 1903 in India. George Orwell actually was not his real name. That's not even my factoid. No, I didn't even know that. His real name was Eric Arthur Blair. Hmm. Uh, George Orwell's better, gotta say. I guess that's it why is. he's a famous writer. And we are not. Um, so my factoid about him, a lot has been written about him, but one thing in looking, uh, uh, reading a little bit about him this week that I thought was cool is that he was a notorious practical joker when he was in school. That is surprising. I, you know, I thought so too, but then he, this is the dude that wrote Animal Farm. Oh, that's true. Uh, he's mischievous. I mean, he's a bit, he's got a bit of a twinkle in his eye. Um, and so let me just give you a couple of his, um, most well-known tricks. So one, uh, when he was at Eton, um, and he played a lot of tricks on his headmaster, John Crace, um, and one, uh, the most notable of those, is he took out a spoof advertisement in the college magazine implying that the headmaster, well, let's just say, wasn't doing the correct thing with all of the students. 
<laughs> that is like the best, most euphemistic yeah, euphemism that, that ever. A, Good job, yeah, Jeff. I can't even say euphemism. That was so shrouded. But no one is doubting what I'm saying there. Um, <laughs> he was actually, Blair, uh, Orwell slash Blair was actually expelled from another school at Southwold uh, for sending a dead rat as a birthday present to the town surveyor. <laughs> so he wasn't just trolling his headmaster. He was into sort of petty government officials, uh, too. As you do. And the wider public, um, in an essay, he talked about the time he sort of played a protracted practical joke on a woman who had taken out an advertisement in a local newspaper that was proclaiming a cure for obesity. And so he had some fun with her um, in correspondence and... Um, going back and forth. So Orwell, you did not want to mess with Orwell, who was both smarter, more mischievous, and had a lot of time on his hand. And that is a sign of a practical joker you want no part of. So that's uh, That's George so Orwell, interesting. who was born this week in 1903, so 110 years ago this week. Oh, boy. Yeah. All right, let's get back to news. Let's get back to the news. So, uh, okay, so Orwell, we can go maybe to DRM. Mm, yes. Now, their uh, DRM digital rights the big brother of your management. Book. Yeah, it's the, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. The big brother of your book. It's the technology that publishers use uh, to try to prevent ebook piracy. Uh, we think it's super annoying yes. this DRM business. Uh, and Tor, which is a great publisher, removed their DRM and saw their ebook sales go up, which is also interesting. But what we're here to talk about today is that there is a new uh, DRM being developed. In, in Germany, the Germans are developing this, uh, that will replace words in the text of books so that each copy of an ebook is unique. So there's sort of a digital fingerprint mm -hmm. on the book. And then if you allow your copy to be pirated or you put it up on a torrent, um, they'll be able, hopefully, to trace it back to who the source was because your copy will be different from all of the other copies. And so they're talking about changing words like changing invisible to not visible or unhealthy to not healthy. Mm -hmm. um, writers do, you know, don't like this because right. writers care about word choice. There's a note in the piece uh, that, that I've been reading about it that will drop into the show notes that the... Um, the German company that's developing this points out that book publishers, you know, have like signed on to this and wanted to try it out because the traditional lockdown approaches to DRM have taught them that even the strongest lock can be broken. Right. And they just want to know who's breaking it, I guess. Right. And so, I mean, dudes, just give it up on the DRM yeah. already. I mean, with DRM, I understand the, the publisher's position, right? They don't sure. want people to read the stuff without paying for it. And nor do I frankly. Um, but don't you think the people who are going to steal the book are going to steal it anyway? Like, if, you're, if you want to buy guess, a book, you're going to yeah. go buy the book. If you want to steal the book, you're going to find a way to steal it, no matter what the... Well, here's, here's my take. And it's kind of like the um, steroid race in professional sports. Mm -hmm. I always feel like the pirates are going to be one step ahead of the, the law, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a pirate here... Um, what I would do is just change a couple other words in my copy before putting it up. Right. Right? Don't I beat the system right, right. there? This is, this is not hard to get yeah. around. I mean, if you know the DRM exists, you, you'd have to have a pirate putting stuff mm -hmm. up there who doesn't know the nature of the DRM. And that's only going to last so long. Right. And this, this business of cha like changing an author's words. Not yeah, I don't find that sacrosanct. I mean, they have editors and whatever. Like, okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess as a reader, though, I want to read it the way that the author intended it to be. Well, then we got to kill the editors, too. <laughs> well, I, mean, okay, I understand what you're saying. But you like, know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like the final copy, the author and the editor have agreed on what's going to be in right. the published version of the book. Yep. And that is what I would like to, that is what I as a reader would like to encounter. Right. Um, sort of a brief follow-up. We talked maybe on the first show, on one of the first couple shows. about oh, talking has, about Joyland? Yeah, yeah, about how Stephen King... Uh, released his new book, Joyland, only in print, um, said he was doing it because he wanted to drive people into actual bookstores to <laughs> buy actual physical books, uh, never mind the fact that it was available for sale through uh, digital bookstores, but didn't release an e-edition of it. That sucker is all over the in internet. Shock in, to absolutely in, no one. Right. No one attention. is, this is not surprising that you can find pirated e-books of Joyland online. So, I guess the the thing to watch now is will 
Stephen King and his publisher release an official ebook version of Joyland. Yeah. Now that it's really clear that people want to read this book as an ebook and would prefer to do that than to go into a bookstore and and I, my buy position on DRM copy. is the best DRM is to make stuff easy to buy at a price people are okay with. Right. Right. I mean. Yep. Other than that, like. I think you got to make it easy for readers to get the stuff that you're trying to yeah. sell them, and and if publishers made more decisions based on what was good for readers, publishers would be in a better position. I think that's true, but we are not in publishing very much, so nope. um, I'm sure they have their own. But we have thoughts. Whoa, thoughts. We got lousy with thoughts. <laughs> we um, got thoughts. All right. I, yeah, thoughts and swagger. Yeah, that's we have interesting. Some of that. So we'll drop that link in the show notes uh, as well. All right. Should we do... You got it. Audible? You got it. All right. Our second sponsor for this show is Audible, uh, which provides awesome audiobooks to you. Uh, we've got a 30-day t- free trial complete with a credit for one free audiobook download. This offer is not available on the audible.com homepage. It is only through Book Riot. Uh, audible has 100,000 titles to choose from. They've got all sorts of genres, thrillers, business, romance, comedy, sci-fi. Um, and you can play it on your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, and more than 500 devices for listening. Like, I didn't even know there were 500. Yeah, I think if you've got device number 498, time for an upgrade, dude. Probably yeah. so. Uh, but lots of ways you can listen to Audible. Jeff, you're doing this a lot, right? On your phone? These- I am. I do a lot of audio stuff on my phone, including podcasts and, and, and eBooks as well. So let's do some picks. All right. My pick is Anything by Sarah Vowell. I really love her on... On audio, her books are fun to read. They're quirky, political slash American history stuff. Um, the partly cloudy patriot is really spectacular on audio because she's a has, great listen. She she's is got a um, distinctive, fun, smart, quirky voice. If you have seen the Incredible, literally and literally, yes, that's if right. Yeah, if you've seen the Incredibles, she voices the little short feisty Violet. seamstress. Yes, Violet. Oh no, 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 um, no! I'm sorry, you are incorrect. I'm what? That's Edna Mode. That is voiced by the director Brad Bird. She voices Violet, the 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 girl that disappears, the daughter that disappears. Oh, all right. Well, I, I will double you. check that, but I'm almost 100 percent sure. Sarah Vowell is in The Incredibles, one way or one the way or the other. other. That's right. That's right. Uh, and her audiobooks are terrific. And yeah, I give two thumbs up to the partly cloudy patriot that also has a whole bunch of guest appearances from other voices. I think Conan O'Brien is on there. Um, it's been a few years since I listened to it, but that is That'd be good. That's essentially a, good a collection of, uh, yeah, of essays about American history, politics, pop culture. It's all sorts of good stuff. She's fantastic. She's a regular contributor to this American life. Um, mm-hmm. and just is fantastic there. And that collection is, is much like what those, uh, essays um, that she reads on This American Life. Mm-hmm. We're going to be like, i got to pick two, and this can segue us into new books. But some think that our man Neil Gaiman is maybe the greatest living author slash narrator mm. who, who reads his own work. Um, he's got a new book out, Ocean at the End of the Lane, which came out on Tuesday. I have not read it, but from what I've seen, I did a review GPA for it. The reviews are great. Um, the people we know who have read it, Mm-hmm. By and large, have really enjoyed it. It's 192 pages, but so it's not that long of an audiobook to listen to, so it might make for a good car trip. Um, but I also heard that he's the Graveyard Book by Neil Gaiman, he narrates, is especially good on audiobook. Ah, yes. I haven't listened to it, but I have heard him speak. He is a great speaker, has a creepy, endearing, weirdly, you know, a Gaiman voice. He sounds mm-hmm. like who he is. So that would be a good pick if you're looking for something a little left of center and creepy this summer ocean at the end of the lane or really anything from the the game and back catalog on audible.com he's narrated a lot of his own stuff he so hasn't uh aaron morgenstern wrote the chapter for our book start yes. here on where to start with neil gaiman and she then said on twitter this week that if she were to rewrite it she would just write it with one book and it would be ocean at the end of the lane is so that right i didn't see I she did her, say but I didn't that see, I missed um that. she said she thinks and she is something of a gaiman expert she that is. ocean at the end of the lane would be a really good place to start if you haven't read neil gaiman at all so that's a good tidbit that is a good thing to know. All right, walk me through the rest of the new books. Okay, so new here. books. There are. It's a we're like summer's good for new That's books true. now. It's all so of a good. sudden, uh, so Ocean at the End of the Lane is out. It's about a man who returns to his childhood village seeking comfort in the memories of his youth and the friend who long ago transformed his life. Uh, and because it's Neil Gaiman, there will be creepy stuff and magic and some fantasy and who knows. What else? Uh, also, Instructions for a Heat Wave by Maggie O'Farrell. I love Maggie O'Farrell. I um, 
would love for more people to read her, her book, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox, uh, which came out several years ago. It was one of my longtime favorites. But this one, Instructions for a Heat Wave, is about a family crisis during the British heat wave of 1976, which is a thing that I had to Google to determine, like, this is a thing that people in Britain talk about. They still remember this big heat wave of 1976. But this woman wakes up on a July morning. Her husband of 40 years has gone to get the paper and never come home. And oh, by the way, he cleaned out his bank account when he left to do it. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Their three adult kids come home to, you know, surround their mother um, after their father has disappeared. And each of those is bearing their own secrets. Uh, one of the daughters has built her entire life around, I, I love around a lie slash you know, mystery. Yeah, man, I, I have this sitting on my desk. I'm going to take it to the beach next week. I can't wait. One of these where like some, something happens to someone in the family or close-knit circle of friends and the people who've been scattered sort of all swoop back in and live in, they're in the same house for the weekend and mm-hmm. all their shit all that starts coming happens. out. Like, I think I got hooked on it with the big chill. Oh, like yeah. everything after that, like, um, what's, uh, uh, the charming Billy is a similar mm-hmm. one. The gathering by Anne. And I love all of those things. I love that. You know, Maine by Courtney Sullivan sort of does that same thing. There's yeah. no big disaster that kicks it off, but these people in the family who haven't seen each other right. in, the last year yeah, or several yeah. years it get together. It doesn't have to be for a death. It could be for a wedding or yeah, a reunion or some event yeah. where there's like all this stuff in the past and it all comes to a head and they're in close proximity to each other and they're mm-hmm. making sandwiches and yelling. Right. I can't Weird get enough of it. Happen. I don't know why. I don't know why I can't get enough yeah. of it. Oh, and seating arrangements too, Maggie ah, Shipstead. Yes, yes, That's yes, another yes. good one. Family and friends come together. Is right. that sort of storyline. Yeah, yeah. So instructions for a heat wave. This sounds like it is going to hit a bunch of my kryptonites at once, and I'm really looking forward to it. Maggie O'Farrell is terrific. Um, so got to give that one a shout out. Cool. Also out this week is Lexicon by Max Berry, who um, he he normally writes these really sharp sort of satires, corporate satires, um, plays with futuristic ideas. And this one is set at an exclusive school somewhere outside Arlington, Virginia. So not too far from me. And the students are aren't taught uh, traditional subjects. Instead, they are taught to persuade. So um, the art of coercion has become a science. And they um, it, it's about the hidden powers of language and learning to manipulate and break people down by controlling them with thoughts mm-hmm. and with manipulative language. And the very best of them graduate to be uh, poets, uh, which in mm-hmm. this in this book are known as adept wielders of language who belong to a, like a secret organization with a lot of influence. Um, oh, this man. also, I, mean, I, I, I have to read this, this dang thing. I want to read it right now. Max Berry. <laughs> oh. uh, I've read a couple of his older books. My husband loves him and has read everything that he's written. This sounds like he's, he's taking a turn away from the corporate satire and into more of a like sort of futuristic play with ideas. Thing, but I'm pretty stoked about oh, man. that one too. Oh, it's got a great cover. I'm just looking it up. It's it got does an awesome cover. This has Jeff just like written. Oh, and I've all already got a over PBR it. project for the summer, so I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do. Probably just end it. All. <laughs> yeah, what's this like for you having a TBR? Oh, let's not get into this now. <laughs> right. So, just a couple other uh, shout outs, or one other shout out is to um, Claire DeWitt and the Bohemian Highway by Sarah Gran. It's the second Claire DeWitt book. Um, these are supposed to be really super fun, well-written, edgy mysteries. And this one is on the list this week because Liberty Hardy, uh, who is one of our book That's rioters, right. cannot stop talking about it. Like, uh, has confessed publicly that her love for Sarah Grant is now bordering on stalkerhood. Mm. Uh, so if you want something a little different in your mystery reading life, a really kick-ass heroine, um, I would pick up Claire DeWitt and the City of the Dead is the first one. Um, and this new one is Claire DeWitt and the Bohemian Highway. All right. Those are new books. That's awesome. That's a, that's a nice line. I think we got a couple more stories in, in the hopper, but I think we got to end this. I think so. We can save these. Uh, can th- s- they're not especially timely. It's just that they happened re- relatively recently. Mm-hmm. Um, should we tease it a little or just let it go? Uh, maybe we can Maybe we can tease it. I've got two words for you. Jonathan Franzen wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times. That is more than two words. But I'm so bad at math. He did. And, and Jonathan Franzen's letter to the editor of the New York Times is about ladies. Sex, sexism. Ladies. It's about ladies, lady problems. You know Jonathan Franzen you knows know lady that's problems. A, you know that's a good story. We've got to talk about this, but right, we're right. out of time. My, here's the teaser. My notes for these, this story, the J. Franz story, yeah. and another one 
is just headlined "Bad Job Old Bad Dudes." Bad Job Old Dudes. Yeah. So we got we'll come talk about those some other time. But we're we, we're we're running long here. So I am Jeff O'Neill. You can follow me on Twitter at Reading Ape. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and you can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Shinsky, which is S C H I N S K Y. You can follow the site at Book Riot. We look at that Twitter all the time. We'll get back to you if you got something to say to us that takes longer than a tweet podcast at bookriot.com. We're checking that out and all the time. Facebook.com slash bookriot. If you are feeling generous and would like to review and rate the show on iTunes, that's a huge help. That's a great way huge. to help other readers, uh, listeners, excuse me, find the show uh, or, you know, share it on Facebook or Twitter and let other people know might be interested. Thanks so much to our sponsors, audible.com and The Diabolist by Leighton Green. Check those out. Help out the show. And uh, that's it. Rebecca, you have a good week. You too. Happy reading, people. We'll talk to you later.